Hey, welcome to the Road and Morale podcast. So do you ever feel like screaming out in the office on Zoom or outside the school gates? For the love of God, come on, really? Then if this is you and you're looking for an honest, fun and frank podcast on life and business, then sit back and listen to me, Rona Morell. I'll be bringing great people on the show to talk, share and debate their life experiences and business challenges. Keeping the show unpolished, but in a fun and unique British style, with sarcasm, tenacity, maybe a few swear words or tears. This podcast keeps it real, honest, raw and removes the bullshit in the only way I know how, through authenticity and getting shit done. Think of it less like the Housewives of New York or TOWIE with the lipo and drama and more like the house lives of the real world. I hope you'll take something away to be better informed laugh, smile, or maybe even finally get in the confidence to shout, come on, really. So enjoy. Welcome to the Rain and Rail podcast. How are you? Hi, I'm well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're most welcome. Um, so just as a brief intro for the listeners, Erin Rembrandt is based in Sydney and is an amazing mum of three. Um, she's a freelance writer and is currently studying well-being economics. And I've been following Erin for quite some time on LinkedIn and I really kind of just felt a connection there between what you were saying, the tone of voice and etc. So I'm delighted to have Erin on the show today. And we're really going to address and just have a conversation around degrowth and what that means and is it possible um so Erin over to you maybe we could start with a little bit more about um your your studies um in terms of the the well-being economies and then we can dive into degrowth yeah um yeah so I um I am worried about my internet connection so let me know if it's unstable <laughs> sorry uh, about it's fine. Um, so I sort of became aware of the climate crisis. It's always been there, you know, it's always been in the background, but I really started paying attention to it um, about three and a half years ago. Um, and I was, I was reading an article, my youngest child was really small and I was trying to get her to sleep. And I was reading an article um, just after the release of the last IPCC report, or it wasn't the last one, it was the special reporting to 1.5 degrees of warming. And I was reading it and I was just like, holy moly how on earth is this not a bigger deal like this is really bad and it was sort of from that point on that I made a decision that I can't just keep ignoring it and that I have to face into it and sort of it's a conscious choice every day to choose to care about it because you could you could easily live your life and and I'm sure many people do (laughs) and not um, worry about climate because it doesn't really touch until you have a massive flood near your home or a fire near your home, which has happened lately in Australia, doesn't touch your everyday life. So um, it was through my involvement in climate um, that I became aware of um, the role of our economy in perpetuating the crisis and looking at other ways that we can, um, you know, look and like live on this planet um uh, that concentrate more on well-being than just sort of constant economic growth so um yeah it's been something i've been actively looking at and studying for maybe 12 months or so awesome just trying to yeah yeah trying to awesome. connect the dots 
Yeah, and I guess, like you say, actually, sometimes when you when you start, and it's similar to me, when you start to delve into it and look at all of the the challenges and, and the truths, um, it can become very overwhelming to the point where sometimes it might be easier just to ignore it and carry on. So, I know we we want to talk about degrowth. So, in your kind of definition, what does degrowth mean? So degrowth, um, it's a, a planned reduction in material footprints, um, which includes energy, so that we are back within the planetary boundary. Yeah. So um, it, there are confirmed that we're exceeding six of them already, um, and there's one being peer-reviewed as being exceeded as well. So it's sort of this contraction of the economy so that we can come back into what um, our planet can handle. It only applies to wealthy nations. It obviously doesn't apply to countries that are kind of living well below um, uh, what uh, there's sort of like a a pro rata of what um, each country can consume each year before it starts exceeding the planetary boundaries. And not every country exceeds them, obviously, but there are certain wealthy nations such as Australia and the UK and Canada and the US and France. And, you know, there's, you know, 120 countries or so that are currently exceeding planetary boundaries and it's just bringing those economies yeah, um, exactly. to, what, to what the planet can handle each year. Exactly. And I think, you know, a lot of the developing countries, you know, are living on less than a dollar a day and they, they really aren't the ones that need to, to, to kind of embrace and, and, and drive that change. No, and when you sort of drill down into the numbers and start seeing where um, the climate crisis is being driven, the wealthiest 10% of people um, are responsible for 52% of greenhouse gas emissions <laughs> and the poorest 50% of people are only responsible for something like 7%. You know, like this is not a human-driven problem. It's a consumption-driven problem. Um, and so, which is, you know, reassuring. That's something we can change. <laughs> that's something we can all do something about easily. So um, from that point of view, that's really reassuring. It's um, oh, it's, 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 there's some wonderful inequality at the moment um, around the world. And it once we start, once we, wealthy nations, start to come back in within punishable boundaries, it, it gives space for I don't like the term developing nations, but I'll use it. Developing nations to start to grow so that um, globally we're all within the planetary boundaries, but their quality of life is improved. Um, so, you know, there's lots of things to like. Yeah, massively. And I think, you know, like you say, the developing um, nations more often than not already have the wealth. It's just that it's been taken, taken from them. So they have their... Um, and deserve the rights to grow and have a better quality of life, education, um, healthcare. Um, so all of those elements, we need to be able to, to empower those, those countries, don't we, for sure. So what, what do you think are some of the biggest myths about degrowth that you have seen? And I'm going to come on to ask you something um, in a moment about a particular individual, and I'll, I'll explain what I mean in a minute. But what, what are some of your big myths that you've heard and you just thought no that's just capitalism at its best 
um so the, there's a few that you commonly hear um so degrowth is recession um degrowth is austerity um degrowth is cruel to people living in poverty expecting them to degrow um sort of that's that oh and degrowth means we'll all go back to living in caves anything that and most of these it would take you five seconds to look up degrowth in google <laughs> And yeah. see that it's not any of those things. And if it was any of those things, why would there be a new term? Like we wouldn't call it degrowth if it was recession. We'd just call it recession. Um, and also, when I just <laughs> it's just, you know, it's insane to think that there'd be this huge movement of people calling for recession. Like it's not, that's not what it is. And it's not austerity. Um, and it's actually almost the opposite of those things. So austerity is... Um, it is cutting services that people need to live well, um, you know, for the sake of the government debt sort of thing. Um, whereas degrowth is let's provide those services to everyone. So healthcare, education. You know, high quality public transport, still of I need more money, I need more money because I, I need to be able to pay for all these things. So it's, you know, literally based basically the opposite of austerity um, and it's not recession it's planned whereas no one would plan a recession obviously um, and it's making sure that people's needs are met so it's, it's frightening going to a recession you think it means um, <clears throat> unemployment and poverty and struggling and kind of human misery um, whereas degrowth acknowledges that there's going to be contraction of production and consumption and therefore we need to make sure that people's meet, um, needs are met as we go through that process so it's not those things and as I explained earlier it's also not asking people in poverty to reduce their material footprint <laughs> it only applies to wealthy nations who are exceeding kind of planetary boundaries already so I see those come up a lot and it just makes me think, please do some research because it's not that. Or, you know, is it that a trying to deliberately, you know, <laughs> tarnish the reputation of degrowth for whatever your own purpose is? Um, and I think that's where some of the truths start to come it's, in, it's isn't not it? That. It's not any of those things. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and I guess when you start to delve into the 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 people or the corporations that are talking in that language and then you look at the reasons and the rationale behind it and why that's when you can really start to think well that's why you're you're saying it and it's no different in the pharmaceutical industry the chemical fertilizer industry the fossil fuel industry um the amount of you know lobbying and pr and all of that so anyway that's that's another whole whole topic in its in its own right um so I was recently on a on a call, um, a, a group call with uh, Tony Faddle, who was the guy who invented the the iPhone and worked with Steve Jobs for many, many years. And I asked him the question because um, I knew we were going to be talking about this, actually. And I said, look, what's your view on degrowth? What does it mean to you? Do you believe in it? And I'll give you his response. I'd love to hear what, what you think. And actually, he said that it's more about redesign and waste. He said 60% of what we manufacture and make to consume is ultimately wasted through the supply chain. And then we have an, an inordinate amount of waste across the globe in consumer goods, foods, etc. So his view was that it was about creating minimal compromise and actually just cutting out those inefficiencies and waste. What do you think of that versus saying, no, we shouldn't, shouldn't have a degrowth plan. 
um, like all those things should happen and all of those things would happen in a degrowth economy. Um, but probably something that in Erin, the joys of live podcasting, Erin is in Sydney. So, <laughs> oh, okay. Do you want to just, do you want to just repeat that last bit? Sorry, we lost you there for a little bit, Erin. Yeah. So, um, uh, so maybe something Tony hasn't considered is that energy isn't circular so you might be able to recycle every single element of an iphone but the energy that went into the production of that iphone the energy that was used to charge that iphone you know whatever else the signals that sent out for the iphone to operate once it's used it's gone um and now where we're at with the climate crisis is that we're so close to even two degrees of warming, you know, the amount of time we've got left to decarbonize versus how much time we've got left before we reach two degrees of warming. The greatest risk is that we don't have time to um, implement all the renewable energy that we need and continue to grow our energy use. So what we really need to do is to start thinking, do we need to be using all of this energy? <laughs> Can we start to live with less energy? Yeah. We live happy, healthy lives with our decarbonisation objectives before we reach two degrees of warming. So that's the greatest risk now is that we don't have time left to continue to grow our economies and deploy 100% renewable energy. It does, you know, to, 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 the, to most people that just feels like a complete contradiction and one is kind of fearful, the other is just, you know, kind of, oh, I'll just keep going, well, just, it's not my problem, you know, kind of kicking it, kicking it down the road. But in terms of practical examples that I guess everyday people, what are some of the things that you've been doing with your family or your circle of influence to, to help on that journey? Yeah, so um, I guess the thing with degrowth is that it has to be orchestrated, um, I guess, at a federal level. So as long as governments are pursuing GDP growth, so GDP is highly entangled with material footprint, including energy use. So um, what I would worry about is if I spent all my time trying to figure out how to reduce our energy use to zero or our um, any energy associated with carbon emissions to zero, and then I'm not using that time to spread the degrowth word. <laughs> and I can have so much more impact if I'm making more people aware that this is what needs to happen rather than focus. It's a bit like if you try and achieve zero waste in your household, but it makes you know very little difference because everyone else is still doing it. So it sort of has to be a systemic change. Um, and there's something called the uh, Jevons paradox where for any energy you save, you sort of reinvest it. So you might find that fuel's cheaper, which doesn't mean you use less fuel. It means that you go further more often because now you can afford to use more fuel. And so you end up using more energy. Um, and so for as long as it's sort of related, but it's not for as long as governments pursuing GDP growth, they'll literally throw money into different areas of the economy wherever it might be. For Australia, it's a gas-fired recovery after COVID, but it might be aviation. It might even be renewable energy, but they'll keep throwing it in there to achieve their growth aspirations. So yeah. um, it has to happen at an orchestrated sort of global level. And that means that people who vote have to be wanting it. So we have to get the word of degrowth out there. Um, so that's, that's what I do. <laughs> that's how I spend my time. Um, yeah. And it means 
moment I'm not working, like I haven't found a role where I can do that every day. I know I'd be so frustrated going in and doing something that's not this at this point in time. So my husband's a bit like I'm funding an activist (laughs) for the moment. (laughs) You are for the moment. (laughs) Exactly what you're doing. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, Because there's not much work out there for degrowth activists um, at this point in time. But um, I just look at my three kids and I just think, how can I not? Like I have to do what I can. Um, yeah, and it's yeah. it's kind of being on the side of the solution rather than you know let's try and politely shame those that, that that kind of aren't playing ball. But I think when you talk about that um, governmental shift, I know certainly here in the UK, you know deep down that it it does come down a lot to the money and to the background and to the to the funding and all of those little backhanders that are going on that we know are going on. Actually, here in the UK, the Green Party had its biggest ever um, uh, kind of support in a in a local election point of view. Our general elections, I think next year, it's really bad, I can't remember, two years, sorry. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, there was a real, real shift, actually, not big enough to, to, to get, you know, hopes of, oh, my God, the Green Party could win a general yeah. election, but it was actually really quite surprising um, from a UK point of view that there was that shift. So what, what can, I mean, we all as individuals in this space are probably doing things at home that a lot of people are, and it will start to feed down to your children and your circles around you. But what would you, what would you want the Australian government to implement to actually drive this systems change? So um, so we go to election next Saturday, so it's like eight days away, um, and it's super exciting. And we've been, I've got a lot of friends in the climate movement, which is, you know, it's wonderful because they're all actively involved in pushing for certain candidates. We've got a um, big sort of pool of either of the major parties but are running on a climate platform because neither of our two major parties have um emissions reductions targets in line with the science like it's really um uh disheartening <laughs> yeah to see that you know one of them has a minus 26 to 28 percent reduction by 2030 which is woeful and the other one has minus 43 percent reduction by 2030 and like the science is really clear that it needs to be minus 50 percent and if you're a wealthy nation that's been putting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere for a lot longer than a developing nation then your target should be higher so that they're way off um uh and as part of sort of the election campaign we've been meeting with candidates and I I literally meet with them we have a coffee and I tell them everything I know about degrowth and they obviously can't stand up in front of thousands of constituents and talk about um, degrowth yet it's not there but I don't think they need to use the word degrowth I think they can just say we're not focusing on GDP anymore and GDP is a terrible measure of anything important like literally um So we're going to focus on human well-being and, you know, planetary well-being because planetary well-being, it sounds airy-fairy. It's almost like, um, you know, even the word greeny or environmentalist, like you feel a bit like you shouldn't say it because, oh, you're just an environmentalist. But we can't live (laughs) on a planet that can't sustain life. You know, it's literally that crucial. Um, So I think they could get up there and say, we're just not focusing on GDP. We're going to focus on making sure that we're achieving our client and client climate ambitions 
we're going to focus on alleviating poverty. We're going to focus on providing needs, you know, um, and that's we're going to focus on the things that matter. Yeah, because actually, if you look at all the sustainable development goals, it's not just carbon emissions uh, and, and, and energy. It is about inequalities, poverty, um, raising living standards, water, the, you know, life on below the water, above the water. So there are so many things to go at that if it's phrased in the right mind, you know, lots of people around the world just want a better life. And I think COVID's really brought to the forefront the value and the importance of what matters now in life while yeah. still being able to have a comfortable um, existence um, yeah. and a treat every now and again. And I think that's how it needs to be worded. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot of things to like about degrowth. So um, so, so degrowth being a planned reduction in produ um, production and therefore consumption, it means there's fewer things happening in the economy. It means there's fewer jobs. Um, and so what we need to do when we do that is to cut the working week so that it's 30 hours a week or four days a week or something like that. So there's not many people that you'd go, hey, now we're doing a four-day work week, a three-day weekend, and people be like, oh, what <laughs> are you kidding you know like, who wants an extra day off that sucks so you know that there's that and also another element of degrowth is to ensure that anyone who wants a job can get a job and you can do that via federal jobs guarantee so it just means that anyone who wants to work and because there's so much work to be done to um to mitigate climate change there's so much we could be doing to protect natural um, environments to insulate homes to deploy renewable energy there's just jobs galore really <laughs> um, but it would be federally managed so they would be making sure that anyone who wants to work can um, at a socially inclusive wage which is much more than the minimum wage is now so there's a lot of things to like about it and so there's a lot of time that would get freed up um, for people to enjoy doing things that's not work, you know, so much of our time goes into work at the moment. Um, well, not me, because I don't. <laughs> I'm working you with you. You're, you're, you're a domestic engineer, so of three yeah, children. My husband, so. you know, I do the stuff that my husband can't do because he's at work a lot. Um, and he would love to work a four day week and he plans to um, when some of the big projects are over because he knows that once the kids go to school, he won't get that time back again. So for him, the four day work week would be invaluable. Yeah, um, and I think it was, it's an interesting movement because, I mean, many, many years ago when I used to work at Red Bull, we always had Facial Friday. So we always finished at one o'clock on Friday yeah. and it was just it was brilliant. And it was it was just a thank you for the hard work that you've done that week. And I think that's transgressed now. And there's a lot more movements I've seen now about, you know, putting in plans around a four day week, because actually, if you genuinely took out the hours wasted of chatting to your mates, having a good old bitch, meetings for meeting sakes and lack of inaction, there's an awful lot of inefficiency of your time in the workplace. So you could, I genuinely believe you could drop to four days and people would still pump out the same amount of work, obviously, which is not what we want yeah. in terms of production and consumption. So I think that's really achievable. And like you say, that day a week that you then get, be that read a book be it walk in nature be it muck around with the kids or be present yeah. yeah would be hugely invaluable yeah absolutely and there's some companies I think um, Unilever in New Zealand have dropped back to a four-day work week it's 
happening in Iceland. I don't know the extent of the trial, but um, they've acknowledged that they can get the same sort of output in a four-day work week because there is a lot of inefficiencies in there. Um, yeah, and people are happier. You know, it's nice to have that extra day where you can make sure that the, the shopping's done and still enjoy your weekend. You know, like if you're working a five-day week your weekends are then sort of catching up and getting everything done so you can go back and do your five-day work week again without really getting to enjoy doing things like read books so you know it's hard to keep on top of some of the climate science if you're working a 40-hour work week and commuting 10 hours of that week um, as well and then when you get home you've got the kids like it is no wonder people don't have time to concentrate on this stuff there is little time and there's a really I watched something interesting this week that talks about the um, inequality of time and because uh, it's got to do with how much you need to work to survive leaves you little time to think about anything else and it's so it was really like it's so true you know like and people who you know maybe they just employ their capital and that's where they get their income from and they don't have to use their labor um, to get their income they've got a lot more time on their hands for you know whatever they'd like to use that time for so that was an interesting kind of concept as well yeah I think that like you say I think if you were to be able if you were able to turn a switch off to take to remove everyone's financial constraints yeah can you imagine what that would would release I think if you had that like you say a, a fair price for everyone to to work but look I know that the top two percent of the wealth you know holds an incredible amount of opportunity and I, and I and I've tried to recently I've tried to kind of listen more about Elon Musk and embrace what he's trying to do with SpaceX and you know focusing on on trying to to, to, to play around with the mind and, and, and the brain and, and help people live longer or after accidents and things like that. But I, I'm, I'm just, I'm just not convinced. I just, why would you openly want to plan for a thousand spaceships to live in a place that he openly says is going to be horrible. You might not live, you might not make the journey because of what might happen to planet earth. Would yeah. it not therefore be better to redirect all that? Because he is a super intelligent guy. Why not direct that back into what could we do so that we never have to go and live on Mars? Oh, it's, you know, it's, I find it almost insane. Like, it's a hellhole. <laughs> why would anyone, why, why would we yeah. even plan? live on mars when we don't even know if it can sustain life we've got this most magnificent planet unlike any other planet in the entire universe that has these beautiful mountains and these crystal clear rivers and you know gorgeous glaciers like anything these beautiful beaches it's amazing why wouldn't we focus all of our efforts on making sure it can sustain life why would we why would we do that it's so weird to me i often think if you've got some money laying around give it to an activist right like give it to someone who can pay their rent and buy some food and then just go and you know make noise and um you know whatever it might be just up oil or whatever that's where money needs to go at this point in time and your um your return on investment can be keeping the planet habitable like winning you know that's <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> i just exactly. don't understand. um you know at this point in time it's not about return on investment because 
you're not going to care about your return on investment if in two decades time the, the world's two degrees warmer we've activated all these tipping points and now it doesn't matter so are you familiar with the tipping points yeah so and actually we all talk about carbon don't we well the the bigger one you know is biodiversity loss and, and, and nitrogen so actually there should be more into reducing the chemical fertilizers and the biodiversity loss that is driven by agricultural farming yeah i mean it's but not enough like you say not enough people are aware of it or it's a little bit scaremongering and so therefore i can't do anything about that so i'll just ignore it and everyone's focusing on carbon and and that's one of my frustrations yeah have you seen an image it's called it's titled um carbon tunnel vision it's just this guy and he's just looking yeah and then it's like all the other problems around it and the thing is once if you are solely focused on carbon the solutions you put forward are going to be different than if you're looking at the full picture and often if you're just trying to solve carbon the solutions you come up with will exacerbate the other problems so i think it's really important to look at the full picture and all of the planetary boundaries that we're breaching. Um, but back to the global tipping cascade, it's um, basically there's a point where we will activate uh, tipping points in the Earth's system. So, for example, the Amazon um, will tip from a rainforest to a savanna. Like it's not going to overnight become a savanna, but there will be a point where <laughs> uh, it's go it, it won't be a rainforest again doesn't matter what we do over time it will become a savannah or oh, we've already activated the tipping point for the arctic so we know now that there will be a nice free summer probably not till the 2030s but whatever we do now it's it's still going to happen like we can't stop that melt in the arctic um, and there's permafrost release in the arctic as well and methane which is coming out of permafrost is so potent something like over a 20 year period 80 times more um, potent than um, carbon so all these things that we're doing to the planet it's just going to release way more greenhouse gases than whatever we're releasing and once that happens it doesn't matter what we do <laughs> so that's the kind of that's in my mind of where we need to work towards so like once we activate that it's too late so we've got between now and that point in time <laughs> which yeah. no one knows where it is but that's where the pressure point is for and me for you, um, if I was to ask you, we will achieve one and a half percent by 2030. What percentage would you put on that in us achieving it with zero being we haven't got a chance and 100 percent being we will do it? Uh, one and a half percent. What do you mean? Or one and a half degrees. The, the one and a half degrees. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, sorry. So we will do what we need to do to limit warming to 1.5 degrees. That's sorry, by 2030. Sorry. <laughs> some research came out this week and it said that between i think 2024 and 2029 or something there's a 50 percent chance that we'll reach 1.5 degrees it might be temporary but we'll get there so like i i think it's gone i genuinely think it's gone i think our crunch point now is whether we can do it before two degrees of warming um and we're not going to do it like um these sort of incremental targets that are really far away, that aren't really strong enough, that are we're trying to achieve it with technology that doesn't exist, but we hope to get it there at some point in the future. Like you're not taking climate seriously if that's what you're proposing. So um, 
climate envoy John Kerry, you know, Biden's climate envoy John Kerry, he stood up and said, we're going to reduce our emissions by, I think their target's 50, 50-ish percent by 2030. And we're going to, <laughs> we're going to achieve it. Use, like he genuinely stood up and said, we're going to achieve it using technology that does not yet exist. It's like, how, what kind of risk profile is that? <laughs> like if the technology doesn't exist, <laughs> you put in plans to achieve it without the technology. And then if it comes into play, you can change the plan, but you just don't rely on you just don't rely on technology that doesn't exist like you can't but I know they're scared to say they're scared to tell people that you might not be able to eat as much meat because achieving those reduction targets means we can't have as many cows out there um and they're just scared that that so um another term I like to use is the Overton window are you familiar with the Overton window it's like a the window of permissibly uh politically permissible topics to talk about so it's like uh, it's a, a political suicide if you want to talk about degrowth right now, right? So no one's doing it. It's um, political suicide if you want to tell Americans they can't eat as much meat or Australians, to be fair. Um, maybe even All British, British people. As well, actually. <laughs> um, it's political suicide to tell people that uh, they can't drive or that you're going to increase the cost of fuel um, and all these things that we need to really genuinely do if we're going to keep the planet habitable aren't we can't talk about them yet and it's it's a bit self-reinforcing because these same leaders don't tell people how bad the state of the climate is you know when the IPCC reports came out late last year and early this year our prime minister didn't have a press conference and answer questions about it like I think he pretty much hoped it would just fly under the radar (laughs) which it you know pretty much did in the media um, rather than get up and tell people this is what we're doing, this is what we're planning, this is why it's important yeah. and, and all those sorts of things. So then it becomes people don't think it's a real problem because the government, surely if it was that bad, the government would be talking about it. So they're not talking about it. So I'm not prepared to give up meat and I'm not prepared to give up my car. And and then all of a sudden you can't talk about these problems. <laughs> right. So, I think because we've had the two years of um, COVID and then now we have the, the, Euro- the, the war in Europe, yeah. I think that's COVID gave her a glimmer and it gave an opportunity to talk about climate. And I think in a way the war has done that in Europe because people are going, right, we need to be, you know, independent of, of Russia, certainly, but then actually just fossil fuels in general. So it's forced an agenda, which is horrific to think it's taken a war for those yeah. conversations to to dial up. Yeah. But yeah, like you say, I think it would be a brave politician when the cost of living crisis, I'm not sure what it's like in Australia, but in Europe, Australia, um, the UK and America, the, the cost of fuel, the cost of everything is so high that there's another 4 million families going in below the poverty line here in the UK. So how on earth do you then come out and say, this is what we're going to do? But that systems change and those people are responsible and what can you and I do and others listening? Yes, we can vote. Yeah. But how, how do we shift that change of denial? Yeah, it's a tricky one. So, um, and those, yeah, it goes back to degrowth isn't, um, it's not, not all deprivation and climate policy isn't all deprivation either. So genuinely, if you're, genuinely if your government was going to um to uh to 
to try and achieve the emissions reduction targets, they should be insulating all the homes, right? And they should be ensuring that these people can live without um, fossil fuels and they should be making sure that everything's taken care of so that people can have you know, a life of decency and not live in poverty. Um, there's another another um, policy lever, it's not quite policy perhaps, uh, that I like, and it's modern monetary theory. And it just basically states that any um, currency issuing nation is never going to run out of money. And obviously you have to be careful with how you deploy that money, but it's not a scarce resource. What's scarce is... Do we have the people on the ground to insulate every home in Britain? Do we have, you know, the resources to put enough renewable energy out there in time to avoid hitting kind of the two degrees of warming? Um, you know, do we have what we need for all the public transport that we need to have available? Um, they're your genuine resource constraints, but it's not money. So, the, you know, there's no reason why we can't look after these people and make sure they've got everything they need. Yeah. It's ideological that we're not at this point in time. No, and it's, you know, even little things like we've we've looked into um, a heat pump and solar panels, but at the moment it's something like £28,000 if we want to put <laughs> solar panels on. Um, the heat pump is probably about a similar cost, whereas, you know, my mother-in-law is just having solar panels fitted because she's over 70 and she earns under, you know, I think it's £30,000. So, but... There's a lot of people in the UK who don't earn that amount of money, but they're not 70. So it, it, every policy that they put in to try and encourage you is, is against you from the start. Um, and, and for most people, who can find £50,000 to make their home? No one can. No not, one can. not the majority. No, no one can. Um, but... I mean, you don't even have to subscribe to modern monetary theories because we are, I know in Australia, and I'm pretty sure it's the, the case for the British government as well, subsidising fossil fuels to some ridiculous amount every hour of every day, <laughs> of every week, of every year, over and over again. I think in Australia it's something like $11 billion a year. It's you know, insane amount of money. Imagine if they were subsidising insulation and heat pumps and electrifying the entire grid so that you didn't have to make sure your house was electrified. You could just, not electrified, um, renewable. You didn't have to make yeah. sure that your, you had solar panels because wherever you're getting your energy from was renewable anyway. Um, you know, it's so, it, they can just, it doesn't take that much forethought <laughs> to make it possible. You just need to stop subsidising fossil fuels. Yeah. And actually, be interesting. I, I, I don't know the figure, but if you took the subsidies for uh, chemical fertilizers, fossil fuels, um, the indirect cost of biodiversity loss, I wonder what that figure would be per nation to then, like you say, re redeploy into providing jobs, insulating homes, rising inequality, you know, raising those inequalities. Um, yeah. But. I don't know. I feel like as I'm sitting here talking to you, I feel like I feel like the answers are there. We all know it's cause related and it's systems changes that need to happen. We yeah. vote the people in to look after us and they're not doing it. You know, yeah. when when you see something like COVID, we react. The, the world reacted. The development countries were like giving out money and oh you just sit at home and we'll pay you just don't go out 
I feel like what's what's the what's the systems crisis that's going to make them act like that? Uh, yeah, and I guess with climate change, it's a slow burn. So um, we've oh, known about. <laughs> yeah, yeah not so not so slow burn at the moment um it's we've known about it for decades so there's no whereas COVID kind of had that sense of urgency it's coming you know it was it's in Italy now look what it's doing it's here but actually there's climate change has just been in the background forever and there's no point sort of pinch point that will make governments act differently um at this point um look I I, don't, I know people who think it will take a really devastating event that might make people wake up. Um, and I hate to think that's what it will take, but maybe there's um, a wet bulb event. Have you heard of that? No, wet bulb, did you say? Yeah, so um, it's taking the temperature of an, an app, like an environment, um, a city um, with a wet towel around the temperature bulb, the thermostat, and that, um, it, um, from what I understand, it takes account of humidity as well. And when um, the wet bulb temperature gets to 35 degrees, it's too hot for the human body to cool itself through sweat and the, and the yeah. human body can't cool. So if you experience that temperature and that humidity, 35 degrees, um for extended time four to six hours you and you don't have the luxury of air conditioning you won't survive yeah. um and that could wipe out you know it's, it's catastrophic to think of if that happened in a big country like india or pakistan or whatever how many people it's happening right now isn't it when you when you look at india they had massive heat waves last week and i think again like six, did it top 60 degrees or or didn't it get I to 60 models? I don't know if it got that hot, but they were fortunate in that they didn't have the high humidity at that time, so the wet bulb wasn't that high. Um, yeah, I haven't read Ministry, Ministry of the Future, but apparently the literally the opening chapter of that book is about a wet bulb event where kind of sort of millions of people die. And the other thing that I worry about is like a global food shortage you know, I don't know if it happened in the UK, but at the start of COVID, there were people fighting over toilet yeah. paper. <laughs> and I was like, oh, imagine. yes. <laughs> we had people literally, literally <laughs> ransacking toilet roll. I don't know why they thought COVID was going to make you have a bad bottom, but um, yeah, it was ridiculous. <laughs> the one thing you don't want to run out of was toilet paper. But imagine when they're fighting over bread and pasta and rice and some of those staples. You know, like it's not going to be pretty at all. Um, and it won't, yeah, it's horrible because this affects lots of countries already. You know, there's food shortages in lots of countries, but it hasn't really affected the Western sort of wealthy nations yet. But, you know, it's only a matter of time. Yeah, and I think it's, again, unfortunately, because of the um, situation in Ukraine, that is starting to happen. So, the animal feed isn't being produced so then the price of meats are going up we aren't getting the amount of certainly chickens and beef etc but also all of our staple goods like your pastas and your rice and your tinned tomatoes they've all gone up between 20 and 120 percent wow. so um the, i think the combination here with with sort of brexit covid war it's yeah. it, it is having 
massive impacts. And I think the food shortage is one that you're rightly to bring up because in the next 12 to 18 months, along with the temperatures rising in Africa and India and countries that are growing goods, they're not seeing those that growth at all. There's, there's, there's no produce at all. But unfortunately, mm. as we're talking about reduction in production, we, we don't necessarily mean the raw essentials of food, do we? Sorry, I missed that last bit. I had a bad internet. We don't necessarily mean the raw essentials of, of, of food. And those countries that do produce a lot of it are struggling and suffering from direct climate act, you know, weather. Yeah, yeah. And, the you know, even the IPCC, when they release their reports, they talk about the chances of... Um, Uh, bread basket failure in multiple regions at the same time um, each year. So, you know, you know, by the mid 2030s, there could be multiple regions across the world suffering, you know, wheat harvest problems. Yeah. You know, wheat goes into everything. <laughs> and if there's a wheat shortage in Australia and there's a wheat shortage in Ukraine and there's a wheat shortage in, you know, Midwest America, how do we meet what we need? And if it happens for a few years in a row and we don't have anything in storage or kind of uh, in... Uh, any stock as backup what what do you do how do you feed the world's population um you know it, we've had a stable climate for roughly ten thousand years and that's what's enabled modern agriculture as we know it and now we're messing with that climate <laughs> um and that's the, the thing that worries me almost the most is food and you know how nasty people are going to get when they need food you know and how do we grow food in cities <laughs> how do you do that <laughs> Yeah, you know what? And again, there's some incredible examples. You know, Singapore is one of them. You know, they are striving to be the greenest city. It is a phenomenal um, place. And I think we can we can grow things in cities. There are some amazing, you know, um, vertical farming. You know, we're producing more things in the UK, for example, but under solar panels so that we don't have to import unseasonal fruits. I think the knowledge, the skills, the indigenous knowledge, it's all there for the taking. Mm-hmm. Um, it's such it's such a huge topic. Um, but yeah, and it's, it's some planning could be done, but there's, there's no you know really coordinated integrated planning happening. And you know, as you start to do all the things we need to do to address climate change, like use cars less, that frees up car parks that could then be used to become communal gardens and that sort of thing. You know, like um, even community spaces and can be maybe rewilded. There's all these amazing things we could do if we started to take it seriously and not just you know kick the can down the road for some other leader who's elected at some other time to deal with, which is sort of how it feels like it's being managed at this point in time. Yeah, no, exactly. Well, listen, I, I'm sure we could go on and on and on um, for many, 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 many months, actually, talking like this. But <laughs> let, let's try and end on a kind of a, a vision for the for the future. What would you, what vision would you like to see for, for the planet and for your, you know, your kids and, and my kids and everyone else? Yeah, I think that um, I really feel, and there's, there's something that's, that I um, feels most profound when I'm reading all the things I'm reading is that we've 
in a lot of respects, we've forgotten what it means to be human. So we've forgotten like how to be artists and how to be creative and how to use our imagination and how to be idle. You know, this feeling that we need to be busy all the time and productive. Um, and we don't, you know, we you know, we don't pass down lessons anymore or, you know, knowledge between generations. And I just think, I just think that's a beautiful thing to recapture um, and just, you know, spending time together and having those really great memories um, that because they just were hanging out together and it wasn't just always, I don't know. Yeah, I think we've lost some spontaneity and some just some connection even connection with nature like I, I love it most when my kids are at the beach and just playing and being outside and and doing things kids should do so when I think about you know what I want the future to be I want that return to simplicity and that feeling that enough is enough you know <laughs> not that it has no. to be more that enough is and is content like provides contentment just having enough um so that's what that's something that I strive to instill in my children and hope that we can realize in the future. I think that that's a beautiful ending and I think it's been an absolute pleasure chatting through some of these challenges that that we have and l- listen thank you so much for joining me um all the way down under in Sydney. I know you've got a glass of wine <laughs> hiding down there so you can you can enjoy that glass of, glass of wine now. I'm going to go it's get night a time. tea. <laughs> <laughs> listen thank you so much Erin so and um, I'll speak to you soon take care so that's it you've made it the show's over thank you for being with us I hope you've been able to take something away maybe solve a problem or just know you're not alone here's hoping it made you smile with a few laughs along the way please feel free to find me on all social media channels and you can subscribe to my YouTube channel just search the Rhoda Morale podcast have an awesome day and see you next time